And the words to that hymn were written by our own Pastor Scott. So we thank him for his contributions uh, to our worship. Let me ask you to take your Bibles now and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you'll find this on page 1029. The title of my message this morning is this. The only success that matters. I'll begin by offering a word of prayer, and then we will consider this together. Let's pray. Our Father, it is a wonderful Sunday to gather and to worship you, as they all are. Thank you for each precious person that you have brought into worship today. From the smallest child... To our our ranking senior, we thank you, Lord, for each one of them. Lord, we've come together today because we love you. We want to sing to you. We want to hear from your word. We want to grow in our Christian lives. And we pray that you would accomplish each one of these in us today. Lord, please help us as we work through um, your son's letter to the church in Philadelphia. Help us to understand the meaning of the text. Help us to embrace the significance of it for our lives. We pray that we might leave this place a a more committed and and courageous people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this church is not a Southern Baptist church, uh, but I do follow events in the Southern Baptist Convention with great interest. And earlier this year, the largest church of the convention made the decision to ordain three women to serve as pastors. As you can imagine, this created a great deal of controversy because not only does that violate the New Testament scriptures, but it also violates the doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so, as the convention gathered for its annual meeting this summer, one of the items on the agenda was the question of this church and what to do about it. Should they disfellowship the church from the SBC? Should they ignore this transgression and allow it to remain? What should they do? Well, the the convention gathered, and they gave the pastor of the church an opportunity to defend his decision before his colleagues. The pastor's name was Rick Warren. The church in question was Saddleback Church in Southern California. And here's what he said uh, in his church's defense. He said, I'm a fourth-generation Southern Baptist pastor, and I was personally mentored by Billy Graham. I preached over 120 Harvest Crusades before my 20th birthday. And after that, I built the largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention. From the time of the church's founding until now, we have baptized 56,631 people. We have received 78,157 into church membership. We have sent 26,869 members on short-term missions trips. And we have trained more than 1.1 million pastors around the world, which he added is more than the total student body of all of the Southern Baptist seminaries combined. Now, you may wonder, what on earth does any of this have to do with his decision to ordain three women to be pastors? 
Well, Rick Warren's point was that his church should not be dismissed from the SBC because achieving numerical success is more important than maintaining sound doctrine. I'll say that again. In Rick Warren's perspective, achieving numerical success is more important than maintaining sound doctrine. So, yes, technically, his church was violating the SBC's doctrinal statement. Yes, technically, they were violating the New Testament scriptures. But, he was arguing, these transgressions were justifiable because, after all, so many people were being reached by his church. Friends, this perspective on ministry is not unique to Warren or to Saddleback Church. In fact, I would suggest to you that it is the dominant perspective today in modern evangelicalism. Today, ministry success is defined as the ability to, to achieve great numbers. Lots of members, lots of baptism statistics, lots of dollars coming into the church coffers, lots of seats in the auditorium, and so forth. And the dominant perspective is that if achieving that kind of success requires us to water down our doctrine or to relax the standards of Christian discipleship, relax the demands of Christian discipleship, if it requires us to use the marketing techniques of big business, or even to turn our worship services into a concert and a TED Talk, whatever it takes to achieve that greater end of numerical growth, it is justifiable. Well, that's one perspective on ministry success, but here's what makes this year's convention meeting in the SBC really interesting. Later that same day, another pastor stood up to address the convention. This was Pastor Juan Sanchez, who leads High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. And Sanchez offered an entirely different perspective on ministry success. In fact, Sanchez called on pastors to reject a fixation on numerical growth altogether. And he said this to them instead, quote, Brother pastors, I appeal to you. If our primary end is merely church growth, we will be tempted to build on foundations other than Christ. And then he said, growth that comes by something other than the word of God is not lasting, nor is it God glorifying. And he said this, our ministries will be tested through fire. You will stand before the Lord. I will stand before the Lord and we will give an account On that day, when our ministry is tested by fire, the only thing that will remain is that which has been built on the foundation of Jesus Christ with eternal materials. And everything else will be consumed by the Lord's fire. Then he concluded with these words. He said, you don't need to be known outside of your town. You don't need to write a book. You don't need to be on a conference platform. If you are faithfully preaching the word, the Father knows who you are. And the Father is pleased. So in other words, the most important marker of success is faithfulness, not numerical growth. According to Sanchez, better to have a church of 30 that is faithful to every last word of Scripture than to have a church of 30,000 that surrendered sound doctrine to achieve those numbers. The big question this morning is this, who is correct? Rick Warren or Juan Sanchez? 
If we have to make a choice between faithfulness to every word of Scripture or to numerical growth, which would Christ have us choose? Well, friends, Christ answers that question for us in today's text, which again is Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Christ tells us himself what he considers true ministry success. We begin here in verse 7. Here Christ explains what gives him the right to define true success to begin with. So let's see his words. He writes, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this, quote, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. A number of important affirmations about Christ in these opening words. First, you see Christ calls himself the Holy One. Now, this speaks to Christ's divine nature. God is holy. Christ is holy. Then he calls himself the True One. This is another attribute of God. God is truth personified. And Christ, the Son of God, is truth. And then he says he holds the keys of David. Now, you might recall that David was Israel's greatest king. To say that Christ has the keys of David means that Christ is David's rightful heir and that he has the authority to rule God's kingdom. You might recall back in the historical books of the Old Testament how God established a covenant with King David. And one of the provisions in that covenant was God's promise that a descendant of David would reign that kingdom of God and that he would reign forever and ever. Well, Christ is here affirming that he is that descendant. He is the son of David, the one with the right and the authority to rule God's kingdom. And the keys of David, which Christ possesses there, enable Christ to do two things. It says he can open doors that no one can shut. He can shut doors that no one can open. In other words, if Christ throws the doors of the kingdom of God open to you, there's nobody who can keep you from walking through. And likewise, if Christ shuts the doors to the kingdom of God to you, there is nobody who can throw them open for you. His word determines the final destinies of all people. And so, what gives Christ the right to define success in the church? Well, he is the Lord of the church. That's what gives him the right. He's the Holy One, the True One, the one holding the keys of David. He has the right and the authority to tell the church what is successful and what is not. Now, friends, here in verse 8, Christ, the Lord of the church, tells the church in Philadelphia that they will find an open door to his kingdom. Look what he says here to the church in Philadelphia. I know your works and behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So Christ had opened the doors of his kingdom to the church of Philadelphia. That means Christ was very pleased with this church. In fact, the book of Revelation opens with seven letters to seven different churches. Christ's letter to the church in Philadelphia is the only one of the seven that has no criticisms whatsoever. So if you want to find a model church, a church that Christ would say is a pure success, this is the one to look to. It's the church of Philadelphia. They have the open door. They have no critical words at all. 
Friends, what did this church do to get that open door? Why is Christ so pleased with this church? Did they baptize 56,000 people? Had they received 78,000 into church membership? Had they sent 26,000 on overseas missions trips? Had they provided training to 1.1 million other pastors? Well, friends, not even close. Not even close. In fact, if you look in the middle of verse 8, Christ says this church has little power. Little power. That means this was a tiny church. From a human perspective, it was nothing. This church had no influence. It had none of the levers of power in its city, and certainly not in the, the broader empire. This was just a fledgling little congregation of believers. They did not have great numbers, but you know what they did have? They had a faithful people. Look at the third part of verse 8. Behold, I know your works. Uh, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this church, it had no power from a human standpoint. But what it did have is faithfulness to every word of God. He says to the church, you have kept my word. That means the congregation of Philadelphia had received the words of Christ with joy. And they had trusted in the goodness of those words. And, and they had embraced the gospel of Christ with wholehearted faith and repentance. And, and it means that, that they loved his words. And because they loved them, they preached his words and they taught his words to anybody who would listen. And it means that they never tried to blend the wisdom of Christ with the so-called wisdom of the world. They were eager to maintain that bold line contrasting Christ from what is not Christ. And to keep his words means that they never tried to water down the words of Christ in order to attract a greater following or in order to, to relieve some of the persecution they endured. Friends, this church was the real deal. They were like the Apostle Peter when he said to Christ, Who else would I turn to? You have the words of eternal life. That's the way they felt. Every word of Christ was precious and pure and truth to them. They embraced it and they were not going to let go. And Christ says, And they did not deny his name. That means they did not surrender one word of Holy Scripture. And Christ loved this church for it. See, friends, there's only one kind of success that means anything to Christ. And that is the success of faithfulness. Fidelity to his words. Or as, as some have called it, the long obedience in the same direction. That's what Christ values. And for those who are faithful... Christ has a wonderful future in store. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 now. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So apparently a lot of the persecution that this church was facing was coming from the local synagogue. 
And Christ calls it a synagogue of Satan because it is Satan's work to harass the church of Christ. And this synagogue was doing that. So they're doing Satan's work. This is a synagogue of Satan. And he says it's a synagogue of Jews who are not really Jews, meaning that they were ethnically Jewish, but they had not embraced their Messiah, namely Christ. So a synagogue of Satan, Jews who had not embraced the Jewish Messiah. And what would happen to this church? What would happen to this synagogue? Well, Christ says there would be a reversal of status coming to both of them. Presently, the church in Philadelphia was weak and their opponents were strong. They were oppressed and the others were the oppressors. But one day, Christ said, that church would be reigning with him and their enemies would be compelled to bow down at their feet, forced to acknowledge that Christ loved that church, not those persecutors. Friends, what an amazing encouragement for this beleaguered little church and an encouragement for every believer to know that all trials in our lives are temporary persecutions, hardships, whatever we might be called to face. It's all temporary. There will be a reversal of status one day. Christ shall call us. He shall, we shall rule and reign with Christ. And all those who sought to crush the church will bow before him. And the church, his bride, will be right there at his side to witness it all. Wonderful promise. But then in verse 10, Christ makes another promise to the church. Look what he says next. Christ says, And because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is a really important verse, so we need to work through it slowly, one phrase at a time. Let's begin simply by noticing that we have a play on words in this verse. Christ says to the church, you have kept my words. Therefore, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming upon the whole world. Now, we've already seen what it meant for this church to keep the words of Christ. But what does Christ mean when he says he will keep them from the hour of trial? Well, friends, there are three other New Testament passages with the same grammatical construction. I'd like to work through each of these. I think they will enlighten our understanding of today's text. The first is John 12, 27. John 12, 27. In this passage, we have a prayer of Christ. And the cross is getting very close. Christ, Christ knows it's coming. He is dreading the cross. He knows it's going to be awful. And all he can do is just pray to God in his grief. And here's the prayer of Christ. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me or keep me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. So in other words, as Christ goes to God in prayer and he's thinking about the cross, he says, Father, I, I am dreading the cross. But, but then he says, but what shall I say to you, Father? Deliver me from this hour? He says, how could I do that? That's the whole reason why I came into the world. It was to endure the cross, not to be delivered from the cross. And so in this passage, what Christ is speaking of is, is being 
rescued or removed or delivered before having to go to the cross. That's what he means here. Shall I pray, save me, keep me from this hour? Then the next passage is uh, John 17, verse 15, another prayer of Jesus. Now the cross is even closer. And this time Christ is praying for his apostles. And here's what he prays for them. He prays, Father, quote, keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. The evil one is, is the devil. So, God, I'm about to depart. They're going to be left behind. Now, what I ask you to do is keep them from the devil. That means right, deliver them from, rescue them from, keep them away from the devil. Keep them from his influence, from his power. And then the third text from 2 Peter chapter 2. Here the Apostle Peter is recounting God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and how God rescued righteous Lot from that destruction. And I trust you remember the story. Um, God, God came to Lot. Lot was living in the city of Sodom. God, God spoke to Lot through an angelic messenger. He said, God is about to judge this entire city. You need to get out of there before it, the judgment falls. So he sends Lot on his way, and then after Lot leaves, God rains down the fire and brimstone on the city. The Apostle Peter says this in, first, in um, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, quote, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Now, what was Lot's rescue from that trial? It was Lot's removal from the city before the judgment fell. So three different passages using the same grammatical construction, all three have the, the same basic meaning. In these verses, to be kept from something is to be rescued or delivered or removed before that something happens. To be kept from the cross, kept from the devil, kept from the judgments on Sodom, to be removed before that falls. Now back to Revelation chapter 3. Christ says to the faithful church, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What is this hour of trial of which Christ speaks? Well, the hour of trial is what the book of Revelation will focus its attention on in verses 6 through 18. Excuse me, in chapters 6 through 18. The hour of trial is that cascade of judgments which Christ will unleash upon the unbelieving world in the final run-up to the establishment of his earthly kingdom. It's the same period of time that Daniel chapter 12 calls the time of trouble, which Matthew 24 calls the time of tribulation, which 1 Thessalonians 5 calls the day of the Lord. That, that period before the earthly enthronement of Christ in which Christ will pour out his righteous judgments on the world of unbelief. In fact, this is further confirmed in, at the very end of verse 10. It says, The hour of trial is coming upon those who dwell on the earth. Upon those who dwell on the earth. That is a, a phrase which appears many times in the book of Revelation. Every time it means the same thing. It is unbelieving humanity. Not all human beings without distinction, but only unbelieving 
humanity. I would refer you to uh, Revelation 8, verse 13, Revelation 11, verse 10, Revelation 13, verse 14. And so, friends, just prior to the earthly enthronement of Christ, he plans a great judgment on the nations of the world and the unbelieving inhabitants of the earth. It will be a perfect judgment from the perfect Lord, preparing the way for the arrival of His earthly kingdom. And Christ's promise to His faithful church here is that He will keep them from that hour of trial. It's a promise to keep His faithful church from the hour, to remove His church from the earth before those judgments fall. Look again at the wording here at verse 10. It says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. He doesn't say, I will keep you from my judgments. He says, I will keep you from the whole time period in which those judgments fall. I will keep you from the hour of trial. And also from the place where those judgments would fall. It's coming upon the whole world, upon all the inhabitants of the earth. And he says, I will keep you from it. You'll not be there for it. So, friends, we have some amazing promises in these verses. To the faithful church, Christ promises, number one, public vindication in that coming kingdom. Right now, the church of Christ is a persecuted minority. One day, the fortunes will be reversed. The church will stand ruling and reigning with Christ, with the nations bowing before the church. But then secondly, he promises deliverance from the hour of judgment, which will fall just before the kingdom commences. Friends, what an encouragement to this little beleaguered church in Philadelphia. Think, think of them. They're few in numbers, under constant persecution. They're remaining faithful to every word of Christ. They're trying to endure all of this hardship. Satan is doing his worst at this church. The, the ungodly residents of, of Philadelphia doing their worst, and they're persevering through it all. And so Christ looks at them, and he says, Listen to me, you little beleaguered church. You are a success story in my eyes. You're faithful. You're enduring it all, and you're faithful. So here's my promise to you. I promise. Just hang in there. You will be vindicated. You will be rescued before my judgments come on this world of unbelief. Wonderful, precious promises. And friends, as if that wasn't enough to induce their faithfulness, he goes on in verses 11 to 13 to give us additional encouragements. Look at verse 11. He says, And I am coming soon. We've seen this language already in the book of Revelation. It comes up again at the end of the book. I am coming soon. Yes, friends, this is a difficult age for the church to inhabit. But this age is not forever. It's not even going to last much longer. Christ says, I am coming soon, which means my coming could be at any time now. Any time now. Could be today, could be in a thousand years, but it could be any time. That's what coming soon means here. So just hang on. Hang on. I'm coming for you. I'm coming soon. You'll experience everything that, that we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then another promise, verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and never shall he go out of it. 
So here the people of God are pictured as a sacred building in which God dwells. His church shall be a pillar in that building. A notable, conspicuous, important, everlasting part of God's temple. A church that was small and powerless and scattered, being promised an everlasting place of prominence with Christ in his Father's kingdom. And then a third promise, end of verse 12. He says, And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So a promise of a series of names which will be stamped upon the church. The name of God, the name of the city of God, and the new name which Christ promised to give them back in chapter 2. What does the receiving of these names signify? Well, it speaks to, the, to ownership and belonging. When you own something, when it's yours, you stamp it, right? You put your name on it. In my, in my library, I've got a stamp that says Library of Brandon Crawford. And when I loan out a book, I stamp the book. You can borrow it, but my name's on it. Give it back, okay? It's a stamp of ownership. And he says to the faithful church, you'll have God's name stamped on you, you'll have the city of God's name stamped on you, and you'll have a new name stamped on you, one that only, I in, only one that I know now, you will know later. You'll get that name too. It's a promise that they will have an eternal home with Christ. They will be his forever and ever. My friends, these are the promises of Christ to his true and faithful church. Now, back to my opening story. On the convention floor, Rick Warren declared that the most important thing for a church is achieving big numerical success. Juan Sanchez declared just the opposite, that the most important thing is faithfulness to every word of Scripture. So, who was correct? Pastor Sanchez was correct. The only kind of success that means anything to Christ is fidelity to his words. What does that mean for us? Well, number one, it means that we must resist the temptation to surrender the words of Christ in order to achieve worldly success. We must resist the temptations of the church growth movement of the seeker-sensitive movement, of the purpose-driven movement, of the modern woke evangelical movement, every single movement within the Christian church that seeks to, to subtract from the gospel of Christ or to water down the gospel of Christ, to make the path of Christian discipleship easier, to get rid of some or most or all of the gospel of Christ, to achieve worldly success, we must resist the temptation to follow that path. That is the path of death and destruction, not the path of glory. Secondly, it means we must hold fast to Christ. Hold on to Him in continual repentance and faith. Embrace His every word and then try to carry His words out faithfully in our own generation. Our task is so simple. We've just got to practice the long obedience in the same direction. That's our job. We know what Christ has said. We know He wants us to keep those words. By His grace, we are capable of doing so. So let's follow the long obedience. Cling to His words.
That's our only job. You know, years and years ago, Pastor John MacArthur said, I will control, or I can control the depth of my ministry, and God can control the breadth of it. So our job is faithfulness to the words of Christ, and then we let Christ decide whether we'll have a church of 10 or 10,000. That is his, his choice. He is the Lord of his church. Our job is faithfulness. Now, I said this is simple. That doesn't mean it's easy. It's not easy. And that's why we must pray every day. We must seek God's enabling grace to remain faithful no matter what. We're in a time of rapid societal change. Western civilization itself is coming down around us. We don't know what the future holds for the church in the West. It's not going to be easy to be faithful through all of the coming changes. But we can be, by God's grace, if we pray and if we study His words and if we commit ourselves to obedience, we can be faithful so that by God's grace, our grandchildren, should God enable them to remain in this area when they grow up, they will have a faithful gospel witness here too. And then their grandchildren after them, should God permit them to remain here, they will find a faithful gospel witness too because we practiced the long obedience in the same direction. It's my prayer that the city of Marshall will have a faithful gospel witness for as long as the Lord should tarry. But that requires us to make good, godly decisions about this church in the here and now, saying no to all of the markers of worldly success, which we are tempted to chase after, to say yes to every word of Christ. And doing that over and over and over again, decade after decade, generation after generation, so that this town will never lack a gospel witness, so that our great-great-grandchildren, should the Lord see fit to delay His coming, so that our great-great-grandchildren will have a sound local church to attend in the city of Marshall. That is our task. Oh, what a joy awaits us if we will fulfill it. The joy of an open door, of everlasting glory, of the smile of the Lord of the church. And so Christ concludes, verse 13, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, this isn't just for Philadelphia, it's for all of us. Have you heard what the Spirit has said to you today? Will you commit to the long obedience? Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us. We thank you that you know your church. You see your church. And though this is a time of trial for your church, a time of persecution and hardship, more in some parts of the world than in others, but difficult for all. But Lord, though this is our state now, we know you are coming soon, and that your coming will be glory for us. We know it will mean an open door. We know it will mean your smile. We know it will mean belonging 
forever and ever in your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful. Might you find us faithful at your coming. And we pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.